Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 14. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your word. Lord, we pray now as we've read this passage of scripture in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, that you would quiet our hearts and perhaps even our minds if we're maybe anxious this morning or we're thinking about other things. We just pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would cause us to hone in on this text and understand and glean from the things that you want to instruct us in this morning and the things that you want to teach us this morning. Lord, we pray that this would be a fruitful time in your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to each and every one of us. Lord, we believe that through your word you do speak. You speak today in the here and now for those of us who have ears to hear what the Spirit says. So Lord, use your word to penetrate our hearts, to open and expose to us more about who you are and who we are. And we pray, God, that you would continue the process of changing us and conforming us more and more into the image of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this now in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we do hope to see a number of you that are not currently members at Apostles Church at these membership interest meetings that, again, are happening this afternoon at 2 o'clock and then next week at 2 p.m., as well, and we just can't wait to share with you again kind of what it means to belong here to this local church body and what it looks like to be accountable to a local church and also to take some responsibility for this local church and take some ownership here. So, again, 2 p.m. today will be the first of those two meetings. So, have you ever tried to teach somebody how to play a board game before? Just Joe, he's the only one who's done this. So, well, if you have and you've sat down and you maybe you've got some friends or some family and you're trying to instruct them in a board game, um, most of us don't explain a board game the way a rule book does. The rule book tries to be like really logical and like start from the beginning and work you through all the rules so you really have a good handle on how to play. If you're explaining to a friend, you just kind of sit down and you just start sharing. You're like just downloading some ideas about the game, a few of the rules, some strategy. Then you go, oh, I forgot to mention this and this thing over here. But by the end of you sharing all of that with them, they kind of sort of have a little bit of a way to move forward in the board game. They kind of understand the objective. And usually we just say, well, listen, just start playing and you'll figure it out. That's the way it is with board games. Well, when you get to chapter 7 in Ecclesiastes now, Solomon is sort of doing a similar thing for us in the game of life. 
Solomon now is trying to shift gears to help us to think about what it might look like to try to live a life of wisdom in a world full of madness, as we've seen in these first six chapters, in a world full of contradictions, in a world full of mystery, in a world where there are no guarantees and things don't always add up. He's trying to help us now figure out a little bit of what it looks like to navigate life in a way that is wise. In Ecclesiastes 6.12, the last verse before our reading today, here's what Solomon had said. He asks a question, he says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? So he asks this question at the end of last chapter. He's like, what is good? Who knows what's actually good for a person? How a person ought to live the few days of their vain life. So he asks that question, and now starting in verse 1, he's going to take a stab at the answer a little bit. He's going to start offering some practical wisdom and guidance for our life's journey. And this allows for some disjointed themes and ideas to be put side by side. Again, kind of like explaining a board game. He's just looking at life. He's going to give us some different principles and ideas about how to navigate life wisely. The connection, though, in this section and in the sections to come is wisdom and what is good for a person during their life. In fact, the word good or better, the Hebrew word that's translated good or better, occurs at least 11 times in this chapter. So again, Solomon has that in mind. I'm, I'm going to help you understand to the best of my ability as the teacher of Israel, what is good or what things are better for you in your life. I titled today's sermon, Wisdom versus Folly, Round 1. And next week as we conclude chapter 7, we'll deal with round 2. So wisdom versus folly, round 1. The first thing that Solomon wants us to consider as he tries to instruct our hearts in the path of wisdom is one of his favorite topics so far in the book of Ecclesiastes, the topic of death. Solomon believes in verses 1 through 4 that only by considering one's death, which is certain and is in our future, can one truly live with wisdom in the here and now. Solomon does not want you to avoid the topic of death. Solomon wants you to be painfully aware of your own mortality because he believes that in understanding and thinking about your own future death, you can learn to live with wisdom now. So Solomon gives us wisdom from death in these first four verses. Let's read it again. One through four, he says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, in verse 1, he begins with a very traditional proverb. In fact, if you go to the book of Proverbs, you'll see similar sentiments there. But basically, he says, look, a good name is better than a precious ointment or a fragrant perfume, you could translate that. Your name refers to your reputation, of course. That's why maybe you could say to somebody that, that they might bring shame on the family name. You're concerned about the reputation of the family. Or you're going to give our company a bad name. That means you're going to give our company a bad reputation. So somebody's name refers to their reputation. And Solomon here is saying, listen... To have a good reputation, 
is better, so this is the first of the better statements, this is better than having precious ointment. Now, precious ointment was a luxury item in the ancient world, right? All of us know what it's like to be around a person who smells really bad, okay? Not pleasant, not fun. Well, in the ancient world, you've got to think about this. This was a time where people did not get to take a bath every day. This was a time when people didn't have this wonderful thing called deodorant. They didn't have toothpaste like we do and brush their teeth very well. People in the ancient world smelled, <laughs> and they smelled really, really bad. And so for somebody to have access to a really nice cologne or perfume, it was a very, very nice thing. And these were hard to come by in the ancient world. And so um, to have a nice perfume or to have a nice cologne was actually a luxury item, and it was very, very expensive. It's nice to have. Solomon says, look, as nice as, as it is to smell good, it's far better to have a good reputation, to be a person whose name is not soiled, to be a person who has a life of integrity intact. Perfume wears off after you've had it on long enough. Eventually, the bottle is going to run dry, but a good name is a sweet, sweet fragrance for all of your life. A good name is something you can carry with you throughout your entire life, and honestly, it lives on after your life. If you're a person who had a great reputation, that's how others are going to remember you. And so Solomon is saying, look, it's not so much about, again, smelling good or having nice things in this life. Focus on your reputation. That matters the most. But here comes the twist in verse 1. He says, in the same way, the day of death is better than the, than the day of birth. Now, is he referring to your own day of death and your own birth, or is he referring to someone else? Well, it seems like the, the following verses would point to he's probably referring to somebody else's birth and somebody else's death, or to put it differently, he would be saying it's better to be in a funeral home than in a delivering, delivery room. In verse 2, he says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. So, Again, it's like he's saying, look, it's better for you to be in a funeral home than it is to be in a delivery room. And this is counterintuitive because in the delivery room or very shortly thereafter, this is a place of great celebration and joy and laughter. And yet when you go to a funeral, this is a place of sadness and grief and loss and mourning. And yet Solomon is saying, look, that is far better. Okay, this is counterintuitive. This makes all of us scratch our head and go, why? Why would you say that? Why is it better to be in a place of sorrow, to be in a place of mourning, than to be in a place of gladness and laughter and excitement? Well, his answer comes for us there in verse 2. He says, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. Solomon's saying, look, if you're at a funeral, and you're mourning the loss of somebody you love, Perhaps you're even looking at the casket. There's an awareness that comes over you that you know what? I'm not going to escape that. Just like my loved one ended their life and now they're being mourned and grieved, this is my own end. This is where I'm going to end up. One day, I too am going to die. He says the living are going to take it to heart. Or to put it differently, when you go to a funeral, when you're confronted with the reality of death, it makes you ask some big questions about life, if you're wise. 
You look at that and again, it, it, it presses in on you, your own mortality, that you too are also going to face the same end. And you start asking, what am I doing with my life? Am I making good choices with my life? I mean, even the connection to the first part of this verse, I mean, what's my character like? What kind of reputation do I have? What kind of legacy am I leaving? Or what's going to happen after I die? Is that it? Do you go in that box and they stick you in the ground and then that's it? Your existence is over? Or is there an afterlife? And if so, then what does that mean for me? It causes people to really start to ask big questions. And Solomon says, look, that is far better. Yeah, going to a house of celebration, having a great party, eating great food, goofing off with your friends. Solomon would say, that's all awesome. That makes for a fun time. But he says, look, when you go to the house of mourning, that makes for a wise life. It makes for a wise person. This is why he can say sorrow is better than laughter. And the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Over in Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses famously writes this. He says, in a prayer, he says, So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Moses, the great man of God, is praying to the Lord and he's saying, Help us number our days. Help us to realize that we too are going to die, that our lifespan here on earth is short, it's brief, it's like a vapor. Because if, Lord, you can help us to do that, then we will gain a heart of wisdom. We'll start course correcting the way that we're living right now. Perhaps we'll choose forgiveness over bitterness and resentment with somebody that we've had a falling out with. Perhaps we'll start spending more time on things that actually matter, our spiritual life, our relationships with people around us, sharing the gospel, serving my church, rather than squandering my life doing other things. Now, of course, some people try to ignore death. Even as we're talking about it right now in, in this church, some might feel a little uncomfortable. Why do we have to talk about this? I don't want to think about that. But Solomon is saying to us, family, he's saying, look, this is, this is part of the path to wisdom. It's foolishness to just try to live as if you're not going to die and not think about that day. Because again, if you can think about that day and start living in light of your impending death, you're going to start living a much wiser life now. So Solomon and his instructions here about what is good for a person begins with this thought that wisdom can be gleaned from considering our own mortality. He moves on though in the next couple of verses to another area of wisdom and this is wisdom from the right companions. Look at verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also, he says, is vanity. Solomon is saying here, listen, it is better for you to surround yourself with wise companions. And for him, a wise companion would be somebody who is willing to confront you in your stupidity at, at times. Somebody who's willing to challenge your decisions if they think they're a poor decision. Somebody who's willing to rebuke you and correct you, actually stand up to you for your own good. Of course, they're going to do this in love. But Solomon says, look, it is far better to have a friend like that than to have a bunch of foolish people around you who just sing your praises, who are just a bunch of yes men that you surround yourself with who will never stand up to you, never confront you, never help you to think more wisely about your life. He says it's far better to have somebody around you who will actually rebuke you. Now, of course, it's never fun to receive a rebuke. 
And it's never fun for somebody to say, hey, I think you're wrong right here. Or, hey, I think you need to actually go confess that. Or maybe you need to repent. Or maybe you need to seek forgiveness. Nobody wants to hear that. But guys, this is the only way for somebody to grow. Right? If, if nobody ever challenges your thinking, or if nobody ever confronts you in the way that you're living, then you've plateaued. You're just going to continue on the course that you're on, thinking you've got it all figured out. It's only when you're confronted, when other ideas challenge you, when somebody points out flaws in your life that you're able to then reassess, course correct, and begin to grow. Again, having yourself surrounded by a bunch of yes men is not the path of wisdom. Uh, we see the dangers of this all the time in the world around us. We see how uh, governments or businesses or organizations or even churches suffer when the highest levels of leadership just surround themselves with people who are basically an echo chamber, a bunch of yes people who just say, yeah, whatever you want to do, that's right, go for it. You're wise, you're smart. We see a tragic example of this in the Old Testament with none other than Solomon's own son. Solomon, when he died, his kingdom transferred over to his son Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, immediately after the death, has a visitor, and it's a guy named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was in Egypt where he was living in exile because he fled from Solomon. Because during Solomon's reign, Jeroboam tried to rise up against him, and Solomon was a strong king and was going to have none of that. So Jeroboam has to flee down to Egypt. But he hears that Solomon is dead, so he's like, okay, this is a good time to come back to my home country. And he does, and the first thing he does is he gets some of the people together, and he says, hey, let's go talk to the new king. And so he approaches Jeroboam, or he approaches Rehoboam, excuse me, and he says, Rehoboam, listen, your dad was really, really hard on everybody. Your dad kind of like, he, he, he put a heavy yoke on us. He made life kind of hard for all of us here in Israel. If you would just ease the yoke a little bit, if you would lighten the burden for your people, guess what? We would gladly serve you all of our days. Rehoboam's like, okay, give me three days to think about it and then come back and I'll give you my answer. So Jeroboam leaves and Rehoboam goes and the first thing he does, which is good, is he goes and he consults with his father's trusted, proven, wise counselors. He says, what should I do? And they go, listen to me. If you will do what Jeroboam and the people say, if you will ease the burden a little bit on the people, they will serve you all their days. Do exactly what he's asked. Well, Rehoboam next calls in his childhood buddies, his yes men. He goes, hey guys, here's what Jeroboam said. What do you think I should do? And all of his buddies go, oh, you know what you should do? You're the new king. You should make a statement. You should make a statement. You should tell him, you know what? If you thought my dad was tough, you ain't seen nothing yet. So he has this really funny little... Um, idiom in the Hebrew where he says my little finger is thicker than my dad's thigh <laughs> okay my little finger is thicker than my dad's thigh you thought my dad was tough on you you haven't seen anything yet and he tells Jeroboam this and guess what it is the undoing of his kingdom there's a revolt and Rehoboam loses almost all of Solomon's kingdom surrounding himself with yes men Proverbs 27 6 says faithful are the wounds of a friend Notice Solomon writes here that the laughter of the fools is like the crackling of thorns under a pot. In other words, he's saying, look, the praises of fools who will never confront or challenge or correct you is just like thorns thrown into a campfire. Sure, they might make a lot of noise, but they're going to burn up like that. There's no lasting value there. You can't use thorns for fuel in your campfire. 
to cook a meal. He says, that's what the praises of fools is like. You don't want that. It's vanity, he says. That's that Hebrew word hebel that we've been talking about. It means just a vapor or a smoke. It appears for a moment, but it's insubstantial. And so he's saying, listen, there is wisdom to be gained by having the right kind of companions. And all of us, if we seek to be wise people, if you want to live a, a, a life rather of wisdom, you need to make it part of your plan to seek out wise people who, again, are willing to confront you, who are willing to challenge you, to do it in love, but who are willing to actually point things out in your life if you hope to grow. This should hopefully come from your spouse when you're married. This should come from your friends that you choose to surround yourself with, from your pastors, from your church family. We need to seek that out if we want to be, to be wise, not try to live in the shadows. And most importantly, we should seek this out from the Lord in his word. Here's Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Every time we open our hearts to God's word, whether you're reading it on your own, whether you're allowing somebody to share it with you, whether you're sitting in church, we're inviting the Lord himself, the wisest of all companions, to speak into our lives. How, how much should we devote ourselves to this? The third thing that Solomon is going to move into now in verses 10, or 7 through 10 rather, is wisdom that we can gain from avoiding certain pitfalls in life. Pitfalls that many, many people go wrong in. Areas of life that many wise people actually turn into fools from falling into or falling prey to. Let's begin in verse 7 and read through verse 10. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. The first pitfall that Solomon wants each and every person to avoid is the pitfall of abusing power there in verse 7. The New International Version translates that first line in verse 7. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool. We remember Lord Acton's famous axiom, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Solomon is well aware that when people are in positions of power or authority, there's strong temptations there to abuse that power, to abuse that authority for your own gain. We see this in politics where somebody gets elected into office and then they use that political clout to secure favors for themselves. They abuse their power. We see it all over the place. And Solomon is saying, look, that is a quick way to, to become a fool in your life, to have your heart turned away from the path of wisdom. Even the wise can succumb to this temptation and in doing so become fools. So Solomon wants us to avoid the pitfalls of abusing power, extorting people, receiving bribes from people. One of the key ways to do this, to avoid this pitfall, goes back to what we just talked about, surrounding yourself with the right companions, having people that see into your life. Okay, a lot of us are so concerned about appearances that we don't invite other people into our lives. We hide a lot of our lives from others. There's no wisdom in that. 
You should have close people in your life that are godly people. Again, hopefully your spouse and some friends that you're honest with and can see into your life and the things that you're doing. So, of course, that's one of the key ways to avoid abusing power. But another and probably even more important is constantly reminding yourself of the model of leadership that Jesus taught and that Jesus himself exemplified. Jesus did not use his power in abusive ways. He used his power to serve others and to build others up. We see this in Matthew chapter 20. Remember the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and she gets all Lori Laughlin on him. Like, I want to try to get my kids some advantages, give them some privileged positions in your new administration, King Jesus. And so she comes along, she starts whispering in Jesus's ears and she says to him, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can one of my boys sit on your right hand? And the other one sit on my left hand? Jesus is like, bye, Felicia. And then here's what he says in verse 25. Calls all the disciples to him. He goes, listen, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, we can never be reminded too often of what leadership in Christ's kingdom looks like. What godly leadership looks like, whether this is in your family, whether this is in your church, whether this is in your business, whether this is in our community. It's not about lording over people and it's definitely not about taking advantage of other people for your own good. Jesus came and he laid down his life for the good of his people. And this becomes the model for how we are to live. The second pitfall that Solomon wants us to avoid is in verse 8, and it's growing impatient. There's another better statement. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. He says the end of a thing is better than its beginning. Okay, just getting a new project or something new started is not where it's at. It's about seeing that thing through and then reaping the rewards of the end of a thing. Completion is better. Good things take time. You know, you don't say, you know what, I'm sick of being unhealthy. I'm going to get in shape. Honey, hold my bowl of ice cream and then jump down and do 20 push-ups and voila, you're physically fit. That's not how it works. Right? You've got to start making some disciplined decisions over time where you change the way that you eat, where you start getting into the gym or getting outside and putting the reps in and exercising. It's not about making that first decision. I want to be in shape and making one choice. Forget the fried food tonight. I'm going to eat a salad. You're not going to get healthy doing that one time. You've got to see this thing through to completion. A healthy body, like a healthy marriage, like a healthy church, like a healthy Christian life. It takes time and effort and determination to grow. The wise person is the person who learns to be patient, patient with themselves, patient with others, and patient with the important things in life that they give themselves to. So Solomon warns here against growing impatient. There's no wisdom there. The third pitfall to avoid in verse 9 is growing angry. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Why? Because anger lodges in the heart of fools. You know, there are some people that just have a short fuse. 
right? It's like, don't poke the bear. You know, you say the wrong thing around them, they're just going to explode and just unload on people around them. And we probably all know people like that. But they just seem to have this very short fuse. But the people who blow up on others, just blow up on their spouse or on their kids when their kids do something or blow up on their coworkers or blow up on their pastors. Yes, even that happens where people blow up on their pastors. They always think that the problem is the other person. That those people out there are the reason why I'm doing this. <clears throat> Solomon very helpfully points out that the problem is actually not out there at all. That that sort of anger, he says, lodges in the heart of fools. That it's actually an internal problem. That your heart needs to be transformed by the grace of the gospel. That you need a new heart from the inside out. Because all that explosion that happens out there is only revealing what's really going on inside. James says in James 1, 19 through 20, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and then here's our key, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The godly person, the person of wisdom, the person that's being formed by God is a person who learns to be slow to anger. Now, you might be sitting there and you might be saying, well, I, I can't do it. I've just been this way for a long time. This is how I am. In fact, my dad was like that or my mom was like that. I can't change. Well, you're right. In and of your own strength, you can't change. You'll probably continue to be that way for the rest of your life. Unless there's some divine intervention that happens. But guess what? If you're in Christ and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then you can, by God's grace, change. And by God's grace, you will change. The fruit of the Spirit, after all, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you are a person who is choosing on a daily basis to walk in the Spirit, to abide in Christ, to be rebuked by his word and by godly people around you, guess what? Those fruit, those fruit of the Spirit will become more and more evident in your life and you'll learn to be a person who's slow to anger and therefore growing in wisdom. The fourth and final pitfall that we need to avoid in verse 10 is living in the past. He says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Don't fall into the trap of living in the past. It's been said the good old days are a combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. Right? Lots of people do this. We look back and go, oh, those were the good old days, whether it's in your own life. or I think a lot of people in America, I hear this a lot. It's like, oh, the good old days back in the 50s maybe. You know, in the 50s we had just come out of the war. It was a time of prosperity. For crying out loud, our kids would just play outside until the streetlights came on. We didn't lock our doors to our houses or our cars. Those were the golden days. Those are the good old days and everything's so bad now. Well, you know what? That might have been true about the 50s, but did you know that the 50s also had a Korean War? Did you know that the 50s also saw the rise of Chairman Mao in China who slaughtered millions and millions of his own people? Did you know that in the 50s, African Americans in our country still didn't have full equality and civil rights? Did you know that in the 1950s, we launched a Cold War and a nuclear arms race? And perhaps most debased of all, the 1950s saw Elvis's dance moves. I mean, how many Christians were offended by that? The world's going to hell. Look at Elvis. 
Solomon's teaching us this is a trap to look back and think, oh, those were the good old days. It's just a trap. He's already taught us in this book that there's nothing new under the sun. So, So human history is cyclical in a certain sense. People have always dealt with the same sins, the same struggles. The world has always been a broken place. There was no golden era that we missed out on. And the problem with nostalgia is that it gets us focused on the past instead of working toward a better future. So Solomon said, just don't fall into that trap. There's a t-shirt that I've seen and it says, these are the good old days. And I think that's so great. That's so wise. It's not about days gone by. It's about embracing the moment that you have, the opportunities that are in front of us. God has placed you on this earth in this time for such a time as this. The wise person understands that and seeks to take advantage of it. The fourth thing we learn from Solomon is in verses 11 through 12, and it's the advantage of wisdom. Solomon wants us to understand that wisdom is extremely important precious and valuable. This is what he says in verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. The NIV says wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. And Solomon makes a point here that just like money has a way of being able to protect you or deliver you from some of the hardships of life. He's saying wisdom, even more so, can do that. Wisdom provides great protection for the person who actually has it. It allows you to avoid so many pitfalls in life, so many steps that other people might take that are disastrous. And it protects you and insulates you from a lot of the problems you see in life. So then, we should be a people who see this advantage of having wisdom and we should pursue it with all of our hearts. We should be a people who want to learn to live in step with God's ordered universe. In Proverbs 4, 7, we read, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Solomon there in the book of Proverbs is like, look, just, just hear, listen to me. If, if you don't get it, go get wisdom. And if you don't get anything else, just like get wisdom. This is the greatest gift that you could have in navigating life well, is wisdom. Which again, wisdom is learning to live in step with God's ordered universe. Where do we get wisdom from? How do we understand how God has created the world around us and how to live rightly with it? Well, we get it from the Word of God, and we get it from God the Word. I'm speaking of Jesus Christ, the Logos, the eternal Word of God. In 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 24, Paul writes this on the subject of wisdom. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the, de- the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Translation, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the key that unlocks the mysteries to life in God's universe. It's through the gospel 
that we come to understand that God created the world that we live in. That we as human beings have gone wrong and we have chosen to sin starting with our first parents in the garden and continuing with every child of Adam since. That we choose sin and that that's responsible for all of the destruction in the world. But through the gospel we also learn that God loves us so much that he sent his own son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven of our sins and we can be brought back into right relationship with our father in heaven. In other words, that we could be brought back to Eden, where Adam and Eve enjoyed this perfect relationship with God, and everything was blessed. In Christ, God is going to make all things new, and for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we're going to experience a life of perfect harmony with God, man, and creation. And if you remove Jesus from the equation, you're never going to be able to put all the pieces of life and existence together. It's always going to be like when you build a puzzle and you get to the end and you realize you've got a couple of missing pieces. Jesus is that key that unlocks everything. Well, fifth and finally, in verses 13 and 14, Solomon instructs us to glean wisdom from God's sovereignty. Here's what he says, consider the work of God wants us to stop and ponder it. Well, what work has God done? He says, who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Friend, listen, if you hope to live wisely in your life, you have got to begin with a foundation that says, God is sovereign. What does that mean? It means God is in control of everything, not just some things. In this text in verse 14, we see not just the good things, that God is in control of all things. If you don't get this into your theology, life under the sun will be utter frustration for you. But if you can get this into your theology and you can work this into your heart, you're going to realize that, yes, although life can be mysterious and although life can be challenging, and it certainly is, life will be manageable because you're going to see that God is behind everything and that God is working all things together for his glory and for our good. God does what he pleases, and we cannot change that. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Prosperity, we learn, comes from the hand of God. So if you've been blessed in this life with a wonderful spouse, a great job, beautiful children, good health, all the things that we would associate with prosperity, know that that has come from the hand of God. Lots of smiles out there. Yeah, amen. God, give me a little more of that stuff. But it's equally true that if adversity has come into your life, that this too has passed through the hands of God. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that God is the one that is actively causing people to sin against you or causing certain horrific things to happen in your life. But it certainly means that knowing that God is all-powerful, he could have chosen to do something else. And so God, in his mysterious wisdom and providence in our lives, looks at all the things that happen to you, the things that are within your control when you make bad decisions and even the things outside of your control that others might do to you, and he says, I can work with that. I'm a master craftsman. I'm a master potter. I'm a master artist. 
and I can make all the brush strokes eventually turn into a beautiful painting, a beautiful canvas. I can make this whole thing turn out for good in your life. And so there's so much wisdom to be had about how to navigate through your life by understanding this foundational principle that Solomon is getting, getting back to over and over again in this book, that is, God is sovereign. God's in control of the whole thing, and he knows what he's doing. God allows both the seasons of prosperity and the seasons of trial in his timing and for his reasons so that you and I will learn this important truth that we don't control our futures. Only he does. Because it's only through that that we learn to trust him. If everything just worked out the way you want it to work out in your life, if it was kind of like you could just say, if I do X, Y, and Z, then it's automatically going to produce these results, where would faith come in? The fact that things are outside of our control. The fact that everything can turn for you tomorrow morning when you wake up causes us to have to live in utter dependence on God and trust and faith in him. And this knowledge leads us to a life of wisdom. Next week, we're going to learn that there's no guarantees. You can live wisely and righteously and still experience disaster. Some people can live wickedly and still experience relative prosperity. There's no guarantees. We're going to learn that next week. But the moment that you realize you're not in control, you can start living with faith and dependence on the one who is in control. Trials are not meant to crush you. Adversity is not meant to destroy you. See, times of prosperity in your life are meant by God to create gratitude in your heart. But times of adversity in your life are meant to create grit. Trials are meant to strengthen you, to make you stronger, and to make you more and more dependent on God. Here's how James puts it in James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials have a purpose in the hands of God. He uses it to strengthen you and to give you perseverance. The person who resists God's sovereignty is going to find the twists and turns of life to be nothing but frustration. But the person who by faith learns to embrace the sovereignty of God, trusting that he's in control, that he's wise, that he's good, is a person who learns to manage the difficulties of life. Perhaps you've entered church this morning and you feel like life just isn't working for you. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's the frustrations that you're experiencing in the workplace. Maybe it's another challenge. You're just going, life is not working for me. It could be, not necessarily, but it could be that perhaps you and your life are trying to do things in your own wisdom, relying on your own understanding. Perhaps you're looking to your wisdom and not God's. Proverbs 16.25 teaches us that this is a trap because there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Therefore, Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 encourage us to do this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. 
If you've joined us this morning and you're not a Christian, you've never received Christ, the wisdom of God, that's the starting point for you. Is Again, as I said earlier, Christ is the key that unlocks all the mysteries in life and in this universe. If you're not a Christian, friend, I want to tell you, things are probably going to continue to be frustrating outside of a life in Christ. And you need to begin there by turning to Christ in faith. That's that first initial step of learning to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. But you can be a believer and have received Christ and still be operating in your own wisdom. We just call you a knucklehead. You can still learn to operate foolishly as a believer. And then God's going to have to continue to smack you upside the head like a loving father and say, you done with this yet? It's not working, right? You done with this yet? It's not working, right? Some of you are still getting that. You're like, you know, you've been doing this for 40 years. God's saying, look, it's not working. As a believer, we've got to be people who are constantly coming back to the word of God and saying, God, I'm going to let you tell me how to live. I'm going to allow you to guide me. And I'm going to learn to trust in you with all of my heart. None of us does this perfectly. But the wise person is the person who's learning to do this more perfectly. Year after year, season after season of your life. And this is the call for us today. To be people who are pursuing wisdom in God's word and in God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have not left us in this world as orphans with no sense of direction, no sense of identity, no understanding about what is good for a person during the days of their life here on earth. Rather, you have left us here with the opportunity to, by faith, be your children, to receive your presence, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts by faith, who is a constant guide and companion and source of eternal wisdom for our souls. We're so thankful that you have given to us yourself, God the Son, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who has died for our sins and risen for our justification, and who constantly offers his presence to those of us who would turn to him in faith promising to never leave us or forsake us as we journey through this life. And Lord, we pray that you would help us even this morning to have the heart that the book of Proverbs commended to us, a person who, whatever they do, they are seeking wisdom. And whatever they get, they're getting insight. Lord, we pray that our constant posture would be people who are eager to hear your voice daily in your word, that we would be a people who are committed to the scriptures, to reading them, to praying through them, to sitting under the teaching of them, to singing them in song and in worship. Lord, make us wise unto salvation. And Lord, we've seen a few specifics of what that wisdom might look like in practical areas of our life. Lord, embed these truths into our hearts today. Help us to live in light of these truths. Things like being patient, slow to anger. We pray, Lord, that you would cause these things to work deep into our hearts and deep into our character and that ultimately because we bear your name as children of God that we would have great reputations for time and eternity so Lord please give us wisdom we ask in Jesus name amen amen well family would you please stand to your feet now as we close singing another song of praise about Jesus